My name is Jeff Leo, and I'm the pastor of College Ministries here at Lake Avenue Church. So a very special welcome to my brothers and sisters from APU this morning. And if it sounds like I've had dental work, it's because I have. So you'll have to uh, forgive me if my speech comes out a little differently than you may be accustomed to. We know that uh, the servant of the Lord, Moses himself, said that he was slow of speech and of tongue. But when the messenger of God has a word from God, he may not shrink back. So, with that reading of the word of God, and with my own physical weakness, let me invite you to pray that God would illuminate all of us to hear his word today. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this place by your Holy Spirit. For it's only by your Spirit, who is our teacher, who whispers to us the truths and mysteries that come from you. Only by him will we understand this surprisingly simple message. Lord, simple messages like these are the hardest ones to live out. And I pray that we would be a people who can be taken at our word. Would you make us like that this morning and do so by the reading and preaching and the hearing of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. In the summer of 1996, the Olympic Games were held in Atlanta, Georgia. And in the summer of 1996, I was about to enter into my senior year of high school. If you remember those days, your last year of high school was supposed to be the best year. So much promise lays ahead of you. So much fun. So many great classes. Unless you were me, my friends and I had found a way to take as few classes as possible and still graduate. I ended up only having to go half the day. I don't know if that was legal, but we found out a way to do it. Uh, Don't recommend that for anyone, but... They allowed it, and I graduated. But in that summer, as I was anticipating my last year, I was afforded an opportunity that I simply couldn't pass up. It was an opportunity that was so exciting to me. A group of us were asked if we would like to go to the Olympic Games. And in Tulsa, Oklahoma, this was kind of a big deal because, you know, the Olympics have never been held there. It's not a world-class city of any kind. Love it, though I do. But we were offered this opportunity to go by bus to Atlanta, Georgia, and to do a couple things there. In order to earn our keep and to go there at a reduced rate, we were to sell Olympic merchandise in the kiosks around the Olympic Village. Easy enough. In compensation, we were to receive tickets to the sporting events that we really wanted to see. So mine were table tennis, taekwondo, you know, things like that. I really wanted to see them. So that summer, we boarded a bus, a really nice bus. You know the kind, the ones that have TVs above your head. And for a 17-year-old, that is the epitome of cool. Riding on, it was actually the bus painted in regal maroon and white. Those were our school colors. With the words Jinx Trojans on the side. You see, this wasn't just any bus. This was the bus that the football team used. 
And we took that bus down to Atlanta, Georgia. We were so excited. I even tried Waffle House somewhere in Atlanta. It was so exciting. We arrive at our destination. We get dropped off and we look around and we uh, go up to this uh, middle school where we'll be staying in the gym for the time the buses leave. And all of us in our anticipation begin to wonder, how come this is taking so long? Why isn't, why isn't the school open? Why, why can't we set our things down? Hours pass and it becomes clear that the school didn't even know that we were going to be there. You see, what had happened was the man who organized this opportunity for us fled the country with our money. Oh, the collective gasp. Thank you. <laughs> you also recognize the invidious, the, the heinous, flagrant violation of truth that this was. This kind of lie, this kind of swindling. Breaches of fidelity, breaches of integrity are very, very clear. They were equally clear in Jesus' day. And so the thing that he continues to do in this Sermon on the Mount is not to tackle the big ones, but to begin to meddle in the little things. You recall what he's done in the previous weeks as we've been preaching the Sermon on the Mount, addressing murder and adultery, things that were easy to escape because, well, most of us have never murdered and many of the folks that he was talking to weren't married, so these things were easy. So he begins to meddle in the difficult things. You see, it wasn't the big things, it was the small details that people were really concerned about that Jesus begins to address in the Sermon on the Mount and today he teaches us one central truth. That in the family of God, we are a people who are to be taken at our word. In the family of God, we are a people who are to be taken at our word. In this short passage, the teaching is clear. There's just one do and one don't. Let's start with the don't, shall we? You're going to need your text, you're going to need it out, and you're going to need it open because we'll be looking at it the whole time. And I want to begin in verse 33, where Jesus takes on a familiar saying, something that was generally accepted among the people that he was talking to. In fact, this saying comes from the Old Testament itself, so it makes sense that he would pick up on this saying. Look at what it says. Again, that favorite word of Matthew. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, Leviticus 19, verse 12. But keep the oaths you have made to the Lord, Deuteronomy 23 and 23. These sayings were well known to the audience because the audience, at least partially, was full of scribes and Pharisees who knew the law by heart. Why would Jesus begin this section this way. You've heard it said, Old Testament quotation, but I say to you something different. Why would Jesus take on the Old Testament? Isn't it clear? It's not the Bible that he disagrees with. It's what happened to the way the Bible began to be treated by the people in his day. 
This was the problem. Look at verse 33. Some of you careful observers will notice that it said, keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. And it should cause us to ask a question. What about the things that I didn't make an oath about? Do I have to keep those too? You see, this was the kind of legal wrangling that became popular in the day. So that swearing by Jerusalem and swearing toward Jerusalem had very different effects. In one, you had to keep your oath. In the other, you didn't. And the accountability in this day and age, of course, was a wrathful deity. Divine punishment that came to you if you didn't keep your word. But only if, on a technicality, you were required to do so. Do we do this with our words? Do we have conventions by which we can say one thing and actually not mean what we say? We, we certainly do. Can you think of a few examples? I was racking my brain to think of a few. The Christian-y ones are ones like, I'll pray for you. Right? You know what that means. It means see you later. I mean, it's almost synonymous with goodbye. But there are more serious ones too. Ones about singing songs where we give all that we have to the Lord in service to Him. Brothers and sisters, I think this is a dangerous habit to sing words that are hard to mean and to sing them to the Lord. It's one thing to aspire to be true to these words. It's another to go through the motions. These are the kinds of dangers and you see what Jesus says here in verses 34 and 35. I tell you, the people of God are different. Do not swear at all. Those words are important, at all. It marks just how completely different the people of God were supposed to be from the world that surrounded them. Do not swear at all. This is not something that the people of God need to do. We have to wonder together, how does Jesus make that case that we don't need to do that? Well, first he says, we don't swear by heaven. We don't swear by earth. We don't swear by Jerusalem. What do these three things have in common? Jesus lays it out for us clearly. The first one, heaven belongs to God. That is where he sits enthroned in majesty. What is the earth? Well, it belongs to God. It is the place where he rests his feet and will one day make his dwelling with humanity. What is Jerusalem? Well, it is his holy city, that place where he plans redemption for the whole earth. These things belong to him. That we would swear by them means that we would pretend to own them and control them. And in the last quotation, Jesus makes it absolutely clear that this cannot be the case because he says, what about you, brothers and sisters? Do not even swear by your own head because Jesus knows every hair. And you have no control over whether you make it black or white, though some of us pretend to have control. We know that we don't really control these things that Jesus, in his ownership, because all things were by him and for him created, 
that he alone owns these things? How does his ownership of these things change the way that the people of God deal with each other? Well, before we get there, I was looking hard for some way to talk about the issue of truth-telling beyond adjusting our answer to the question, how do I look, right? We've got to figure out something more in this passage. There's something deeper here. You see, I realize this is about much, much more than over-promising and under-delivering. This is actually about overselling even ourselves. Why is that a problem? Well, this is where the antithesis comes in. You see, Jesus says, but, in verse 34, that's, that's the antithesis. The thesis is the Old Testament quotation, and the antithesis is Jesus saying. And the best analogy that I could come up with is when airlines oversell their seats. I know some of you work for airlines. Trust me for a moment here. Suspend your disbelief. You know how it works. That an airplane with 150 seats can oversell by as much as 75 seats because that's how often people don't end up taking their seats. Countless business travelers, countless parents with screaming babies, countless oversleepers don't make it. And so airlines are forced to habitually oversell their airplanes in order to make money lest they lose money and have to shut down. This works for airlines. It makes good business sense. But if you've ever been on the receiving end of an overbooking, you have a sense of unfairness. The same is true when the people of God oversell themselves and their churches. How do we do this? Well, I'm no stranger to this. I regularly make myself seem greater than I am. Even this passage with its simple message of truth-telling, I sat wrangling this week, trying to find something more profound to say. You see, what happens when you tell people that you're a PhD student, they begin to expect that you say profound things. And I want you to know that I fight that with every fiber of my being. I have nothing profound to say, save for what God has said to me. Um... This goes for all of my seminary brothers and sisters. There's a joke among many of us who receive professional degrees from seminaries about the MDiv, which stands for Master of Divinity. Oh, the hubris of such a degree that I might have mastered the divine. No. Even when I was a parachurch campus ministry worker, people would frequently ask me what I did. And they would ask me, why are you still hanging around with college students? Why don't you get a real job? <laughs> that was the undertone, right? And what I would say to them was something pompous, like, I am a religious and vocational advisor to college students. <laughs> exactly, none of you are persuaded. <laughs> One of my supervisors told me what he says to people when they ask why, at 50-plus years of age, he's still hanging around with college students. And he said very plainly, 
and very simply, I help college students consider the claims of Jesus Christ for their life and for their studies. And I was cut to the heart. This is the plain spoken truth about who I am and what I do. You see, we live before the face of God who knows every hair on our head in the family of God. There's no need to exaggerate because God is our witness. You remember what Scarlett O'Hara says there before the sunset behind her. She says, as God is my witness, I will never be hungry again. But she forgot that God is her witness. Because do you remember, remember what she says just before that famous quotation? She says, I'll never be hungry again, no, nor any of my folk, if I have to lie, steal, cheat, or kill. As God is my witness, I will never be hungry again. Someone needed to remind Sister Scarlet that God is her witness. We live before the face of a God who knows every hair, every thought before it's spoken, every day before it came to pass. And because of his total foreknowledge, we can rest and find comfort in a God who still loves us despite knowing what sin we have and will engage in. This is the God of the family of God. And so we don't use words in a way that oversells ourselves. Because doing so actually violates that which Jesus has been trying to do since the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and that is build a community. You see, using words in a way to make ourselves great is actually a way of pushing ourselves out of the community of God. There's yet another way to get out of the community of God, and that's by avoiding. This text doesn't deal directly with the issue of avoidance, but the theme of truth-telling certainly applies. You see, if we don't intentionally pursue difficult conversations with one another, we will never have the opportunity to speak truth to one another. If there is relational division that keeps people from talking about important issues in this church, we'll never have the chance to tell each other the truth. Just this last week, a dear brother stopped me when I was in a store and told me that he recognized me. And he took the time to share with me some of his deep concerns. I could read the gravity on his face, and I was so thankful that he stopped and he talked to me. Brothers and sisters, I hope you feel the same freedom to stop your elected leaders and your pastoral staff and talk to them about things. But more importantly, I would ask that we talk together with one another because this is a family. There's got to be some kind of equivalent to the dinner table where we can sit down and hash things out. Truth-telling requires community. I hope you can feel like you speak the truth to each other. But I also want you to be cautious because Jesus teaches us a second lesson in the final verse of our text in verse 37. You can look there with me now. It's very simple. In fact, it starts with the word simple. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. What does simplicity in our speech look like? How do we do this? Well, I don't know what to say besides we tell the truth. 
sometimes Christians like to say that we speak the truth in love. And if you've ever been on the wrong end of that verse, you know that sometimes that verse is used as license to become completely insensitive and to be reckless and careless with our words. For some, it has become that excuse. Is that the kind of simplicity that Jesus has in mind? I'm just saying. I'm just telling the truth. And then like a wrecking ball, someone's life caves in. You see, this is where we have to become a little bit savvy about the way we use our words. Do you know the difference between direct and indirect communication? Let me give you an... I decided I need to explain this very carefully. Let me give you an example of direct communication. Let's say you're on the job and your supervisor comes to you. It would be direct communication for that supervisor to say something like, you did a terrible job on that project. Even if it's true, it would be very direct to say, you did a bad job today. And there are those, even among us, in fact, I would say the majority of you, for whom a comment like that is significantly troubling. And before you jump to the conclusion that we all just need to grow thicker skin in order to become truth-tellers, we must consider how we speak the truth in love. So let me give you an opposite example of indirect communication. You see, I grew up in a home where it took no words for me to know exactly where I stood with the family. To use words would be an assault on a family member. And I would argue the majority of the world, in fact, the people in Jesus' day, truth-telling there looks completely different. So these kinds of differences, while our communication might look different from culture to culture, one thing remains in clear focus here in verse 37. Our integrity is what Jesus has in mind. That's why he says anything else comes from the evil one. Is this hyperbole? Can I not take an oath? What happened on my wedding day then? I ask myself. You see, it's not oaths that are bad. It's missing integrity that Jesus says is bad. The need to feel bigger. The need to be greater like the disciples asked. You see, this need is not altogether unlike a failure to care for the humble. With regard to personal morality, the point is using words in a way that doesn't ignore the image of God in others. And so we need to zoom out for just a second and ask, what has Jesus been doing in the Sermon on the Mount? At the very beginning, it is written that he sits down. The traditional posture for a rabbi the traditional signal for anyone who would come to hear him to sit at his feet and to listen to what he has to say to consider whether this is a rabbi worth following. Jesus, in sitting down, calls a new family to himself. And among them, I am confident that there were people who had been lied to. They had been lied about I'm confident that there were other people too. There were the type who were concerned with the legal wrangling that would make them guiltless and faultless of the words that Jesus was speaking. 
There were other people too, people who had seen so much pain that they didn't think that Jesus' words could possibly ever be true in a family, especially a family this size. There are people who had been hurt so badly by words, by being treated as less than the image of God, that when Jesus finally spoke these words, it was like a breath of fresh air, as if the Spirit of God had come to refresh a soul and said, welcome to the family of God. This is what it will be all about. Jesus was creating this community of people with integrity so that together we would have corporate integrity and that requires that we must not proudly wave the features and benefits of our church before a world that's looking for healing. It's one thing to wave the values that we love so dearly. It's another thing to act them out entirely. This is so critical for me and it's become increasingly important as I work with college students. And let me tell you why. Whenever a college student comes into the office and sits down and says, I'm considering leaving the faith, nine times out of ten, it's because the church doesn't live up to what it says. And if you are a newcomer here, we do welcome you and we invite you to take a look at the values that we've listed on our website to see whether this is a church that lives up to what it says, whether this is a church that tells the truth. That has to be one part of the calculus as you decide where to go to church, and that's what I recommend to every college student when we send them off from here. Is this a church that's living out the gospel? You see, sometimes there's an artificial division between the great commandments. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, the first one is to love the Lord your God, and the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And somehow, though most of us would agree that these two ought to be fused together, students are picking up, whether intentionally on our part or by omission. College students everywhere are picking up on a division between the two where the church says one thing and it doesn't do it. Brothers and sisters, we can't be that people. We have to be truth tellers in the way we do things. The task that we had, the grueling task that we had as we prepared and sat together on Tuesday, was how to paint a picture of the family of God that would actually make people want to come in. You see, there are many people, many skeptics, who would say this is not possible. So I believe that there is really only one strategy. And that's for us to consider the life of Jesus Christ himself. This was his sermon. So I want you to think to John 4 with me. When Jesus approaches a woman at a well whom he should not have been talking to, he told her the truth and said to her, you've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. But he didn't do so in a way that would drive her away nor diminish her humanity. In fact, it would cause a response that says, Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. It causes awe and wonder, reverence and respect. It causes worship in spirit and truth that caused an entire community to come to Jesus. This is a different kind of truth-telling. Consider Jesus in the opening lines of the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 27. 
Jesus bursts onto the scene in ministry and people are astonished at his teaching. But he hasn't said anything yet. You see, he walks into the synagogue and there is a man oppressed by an evil spirit. He delivers the man. And then Mark records the people were astonished at his teaching. Let me make this connection explicit. Jesus does something. And the people are astonished at his teaching. His doing is his teaching. They are fused together and always have been. And when all was lost, when it had appeared that betting on this Jesus guy was a losing proposition, when he was laid in the grave and his disciples began to despair, when everyone thought that this was a grand mistake, he rose from the grave. Giving Paul a reason to write the words in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Every promise that Jesus makes. And one of them is this, that he will make us into that people that reflects his image if you don't believe me, believe him. Because by his resurrected glory, we have a promise that is unshakable. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks that by your resurrected son, Jesus, we have confidence even to approach the throne of grace. That we would hear back from you that indeed the people who have been lied to and hurt, that they bear your image and they are welcome in your family that you said, blessed are those who are persecuted and lied against for the sake of your name. May we be a people who welcome them too. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.